If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning. Go to Acts 19, and that's where we're going to be. If today is your first day with us, let me again say welcome. We're so glad that you've decided to join us this morning. We realize that there's a lot of different places that you could go. There's a lot of different churches in the area, a lot of good ones. Um, And we're glad that the Holy Spirit led you here this morning. We believe that that was for a reason, that there's a purpose that you're here. And again, if today is your first day with us, uh, most of this year we've spent going through the book of Acts. And that's kind of where we've been camping out. I believe that we've been there some 20 Sundays so far this year. And it kind of makes sense that we're right there in uh, Acts 19. And we've spent the last four weeks before this going through a series called Restored. And we've been looking at lives that were once kind of broken, pictures that were once broken, stories that were once broken. And we've even referenced several stories from families here at Creekside and talk about how God has brought restoration. And we just wrapped that up last week and this morning we're going back to our series in Acts. And we're actually going to finish this out over the next several weeks. And uh, man, I, I hope that you've enjoyed this, but we're calling it Acts and this is the mission of God. We started out where it was Acts, and this is the, the Jesus and His Spirit. This is Acts, Jesus, and His church. And now we're in Jesus and His mission. And we've seen so much happen in the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit comes down, and He starts His work in this brand new family called the church. It's really not a book about the church. It's not really a book about what happens after Jesus dies. It's not really a book even about church planning. But the whole book of Acts is about the Spirit of God moving in the hearts and lives of men, women, and children. And so we saw that the Holy Spirit come down. He formed this new family called the church. And the church became a family. Literally sharing one another's burdens. Sharing with their materialism. Sharing with their possessions. If anybody had any need at all the church would come together and they would say, you know what, what God has given me is not really mine. I will sacrifice it for the need of those, uh, for those who are in need. It's not about me. And we, then we saw that the church, that, that several really radical stories started happening with this guy named Saul. And God came into his life. He radically changed him on this road to Damascus, changed his life. He became one of the greatest missionaries, if not the best missionary of all time. And so we've been kind of following him a lot. Um, But before we jump into Acts this morning, before we jump into some of the work of Paul, before we even jump into uh, the the work here in Ephesus, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Bible has a way, and God has a way, of taking men and taking taking women in the scriptures and even in real life, taking them and sometimes allowing them to go through certain situations and then later on taking the exact situation that they just went through, that they endured, that they suffered through, and then God uses that in a specific way, allows them to go through it and then allows something to happen to them But then immediately God takes the work that he just did and he allows it to be used through them. I'll give you an example. There was a man in the Old Testament who really struggled with his identity. He didn't really know who he was. He was confused about where he came from. 
He was confused about who his family might be. You see, he had kind of spent most of his days with his rich family. But you see, on the, on the side, he had another family, his real family, who was really poor. And he lived most of his life asking himself the question, who am I? Who is my real family? Am I rich? Am I poor? What is my language? What is my heritage? And if you know much about this man, this man was named Moses, who lived with the Egyptians, but who was really a Hebrew. And you see, the great thing about this man named Moses and what God did in his life and what God did in securing his identity was that eventually God brought this man named Moses to lead a whole nation to get to a place where they had to answer the question, who are we? Who are we? And God used this man named Moses and used his story to then set apart a whole nation. God does this all the time. God does this sort of thing. He, he took this man who once abandoned Jesus in the most critical moment in all of Scripture. He took this man who, who, who was one of his friends who followed him for all of his, his ministry. He took this man who left him in the most important time in all of his ministry who was afraid who hid himself, he took this man to eventually be the leader of one of the most persecuted churches in all of history, who could have been fearful for all of his life, but God took him one of these moments where he was most fearful. God changed his life, and then he became the leader of one of the highest persecuted churches in all of the world. That man was named Peter. God is always taking us. God is always taking us and showing us new experiences so that we might be able to go through that, that we might be able to endure that, so that we might be able to be steadfast in the middle of that. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you that if you allow God to have His way in your life, if you allow God to do what He's trying to do, then nothing is wasted and He's going to, he's going to take what you go through and then use it so that you might be able to minister to others. He's going to take it. He's going to use it. We just talked about a few weeks ago in Hebrews where it talks about this Jesus who died on the cross for your sin, for my sin, who died on the cross for your shame and for your guilt, and He endured the weight that you and I were able to endure. He endured suffering to a place that you or I will never experience, endured the wrath of God in a way that you and I don't have to, and Hebrews says about this Jesus that he's able to identify with our sorrows and with our pains and with our sufferings. That what Christ endured is now being used for our benefit. So did you come here this morning stressed out? Did you come here this morning in pain? Did you come here this morning in grief? Did you come here in turmoil? Did you come here today looking for answers? Did you come hurting? Because I guarantee that if you walked in this morning that the possibilities are really high, the chances are really high that whatever you're experiencing this morning, God is preparing for you down the road. Preparing you, go, allowing you to go through this Allowing you to experience this because there's going to become a time where he's ready to minister to someone else through your pain, through your 
new experience. This morning we're going to see that in Acts chapter 19. So if you're there, say, I'm there. The words should be up on the screen. Acts 19, we're going to start in verse 11. We're going to see this very thing, and it's, it's a lot. I, I, do I have to, I, I don't feel like I should ask your permission, but I'm going to read a lot of scripture. Is that okay? Like, I, I hope that you'll stay with me, okay? The words will be up on the screen, but it's a lot of scripture, so just hang with me there. Acts 19, starting in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This is in the city of Ephesus. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over over all those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims, And so seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. And so what's happening here is Paul is going around and Paul is healing people. He's saying things like, in the name of Jesus Christ, I declare you healed. Or if maybe somebody had a demon, they were oppressed, maybe they were demoniacs, Paul would go in and he would say, in the name of Jesus, you be healed. And what would happen is they would be healed. So much so that even a handkerchief or an apron that had just touched Paul could be taken to the sick, into the disease, into the demoniacs, and they would be healed. Now, this is where things get a little tricky. Okay, you've got folks there who are religious, who are not followers of Jesus. They're just kind of these Jewish students, and they are trying to be like Paul. They're trying to be as influential as Paul. They're trying to be healers like Paul. And so what they do is they go out and they try to heal people in the name of Jesus through Paul. If you notice that right there, it says some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, so they're not really followers of Jesus. They invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they're saying, hey, we don't know this Jesus, but we do know about Paul, and we are trying to, they're literally trying to heal people through Paul, through the name of Jesus. A lot going on there. Verse 14. So the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, saying, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirits leaped on them. They mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I would call that a felt experiment. And so really you have these imposters who aren't followers of Jesus trying to heal people, trying to cast out demons, and they come upon this man who's really got a demon. All right, like a a, a real demoniac here, a man who is oppressed by an evil spirit, and they're a little in over their heads. All right, that's an understatement. They're a little in over their heads, and they say, you know, just kind of making something up. They're like, we adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, and this demon beats the fool out of them, all right? Like, beats the, whole, beats the fool out of them. And I don't know about you, but I love some combat sports, okay? Like, I love combat sports. I'm not shy about that. I, there was a time in my life where I tried to hide that. I, I, I'm okay with it now, okay? I, I love WWE. I love wrestling. I, I love UFC, anything like that. If there's ever a, a boxing match or a big UFC fight and you want to come over to my house, 
cool. Come over anytime. I love it. I've seen a lot of fights in my time, a lot of wrestling matches, but I tell you what, I've never once in my life seen somebody so overpowered or they run out of the house naked and afraid, all right? Never seen that before in my life. This demon beats these seven guys so bad to the point where they all leave naked and afraid. Like, I don't know how bad the fight has to go. I don't know how people even come undressed in the middle of a fight, but somehow these seven dudes leave butt naked and wounded and afraid that's a beating. Like, I would call that a beatdown. Like, if you ever in a fight and you just get beat so bad where you have no clothes and you leave wounded and afraid, you lost, all right? Like, you lost. Don't even try and act like you won that. But these seven guys, I love the detail there. Welcome to Creekside. For those of you who are new here, we do random things. Seventeen. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Word is traveling. Did you hear about the seven guys? They got beat so bad that they left the house naked and afraid. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or, or proclaimed. You see, what we have here is we have this city called Ephesus. And this city of Ephesus was a really really, really uh, wealthy city. And this was one of the wealthiest cities in the world at this time. And they placed a high, high value on education. They placed a high value on, on building and technology. They were really advanced in the world at this time. But you see, this is a polytheistic society. This is a polytheistic city, really polytheistic. They have many gods. They have many, 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 many gods. And one of their many gods was this god called Artemis. I don't know if you are familiar with Artemis, but they had this temple for this female god named Artemis, and it was actually one of the ancient wonders of the world. So if you can imagine with me, just go back and, like, this is a real thing, okay? This is a, a real happening. And there's this big temple there. It's a huge city, a lot of trade going on. They're kind of known for being like this feminist society. It's kind of uh, believed that the city of Ephesus was founded by, by women, by ladies. And so Artemis, there, one of the gods, is, is one of the gods that they worship. So kind of a really advanced, uh, really advanced society. But there's also a lot of darkness. Just a lot of darkness. Like if you have a team of exorcists who go around exorcising demons, I would say that this is a really dark city. A really, really dark city. There's a ton of spiritualism going on. There's a ton of that going on. And what happens is if you can imagine, imagine a major city, a major city like L.A., New York, Chicago, something like that, something bigger than Charleston. Imagine a dark city like that where there's lots of buildings, where there's technology, where I'm sure that you could stop anywhere and get a cup of coffee. You know, there's probably dudes walking around in skinny jeans and stuff like that. It's really advanced. A lot of trends going on, a lot of brand new ideas being created. And in walks this one man named Paul with the message of the gospel. And I'm telling you, this whole city is about to change forever. All right? Dark city, Paul walks in, look in verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers, they came 
And they came confessing and divulging or, or making known their practices. And a number of those who had practiced the magic arts, they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and they found it and it came to about 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a ton, ton of money for this day and age. So the word of the Lord continued to increase mightily and to prevail mightily. So what happens is Paul walks into the city with the message of the, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He says, you don't have to live this way anymore. And what happens is people give their lives to Jesus. And as they become followers of Jesus, they say, you know what? We've been holding on to these certain things. We've been holding on to these practices. And by the way, we're secretly practicing witchcraft behind closed doors. We're secretly behind closed doors, kind of like in some satanic worship, more like in some real demonic stuff. And so whenever Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus starts saving lives and saving souls, they say, you know what, we have to bring this before the Lord. And so they bring all their magic books, all their demonic stuff, they bring it, and then the whole city, I imagine, that they're just burning these books. So much so, these are like ancient artifacts, these things are really important. So, so important, so uh, costly that it, it, it values about 50,000 pieces of silver. And right in the middle of the city, what you have here is you have revival. Where folks are bringing their, they're bringing their baggage. They're bringing their old habits. They're bringing their old ways of life. And they're saying, we believe in Jesus now and we're ready, we're ready to give it all to Him. We're ready to give it all to Him. We've been confessing this behind closed doors. We've been in these magical arts. We've been doing these things behind closed doors, and we confess it. And, and really, Paul is exposing the underbelly of a really, really dark city. You see, here's the point, is that whenever Jesus takes over, Jesus wants it all. Jesus wants it all. Jesus demands it all. It's not just optional. Like, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of this, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of that. You can have this part of my life. Jesus wants it all. We say this a lot here at Creekside Church. We say that whatever the king touches, the king changes. Whatever the king touches, the king changes. And Jesus just stepped on the scene here in the city of Ephesus, and he's changing the city for the better. And these folks, they've got all this baggage, they've got all this sin, they haven't confessed it to anybody. Right here in this moment, Jesus wins, and they bring all the books out. They burn them in front of everybody. They say, we confess it. This is sin. This is something we've had hidden. Whatever the king touches, he changes. You see, there's a lot of folks that love Jesus as Savior. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. How many of you love Jesus as your Savior? Jesus is also our King. He's also our King. We follow the King. We do whatever He says do. And so that's exactly what they're doing here in Ephesus. They've brought all the Harry Potter books out. They've got them right there in the middle, and they just, they're burning them. That was a joke. That was a, total, that was a joke. It just went way over everybody's heads. They're like, man, this guy hates Harry Potter. Keep going. Verse 21 now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia, so he's leaving, and Achaia, and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he's making plans to leave. He's making plans to leave Ephesus. He's kind of already been there for several years now. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he's staying there. 
And about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's what they called Christianity. They called it the way. There arose no little disturbance about Christianity. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. You see where this is going? And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may become into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. So the silversmith, who makes false gods, who makes false idols, he's losing a little bit of his money, right? He's, somebody's reaching into his pocket, taking out some of his money, because people are leaving the way of polytheism. They're leaving this way of worshiping false gods. They're looking at the temple of Artemis. They're looking at Artemis, the, the, this false god, and they're saying, we no longer believe in her. We follow Christ. And what's happening is people are stopping. They're, they're not buying these idols anymore. They stop buying these idols. And so the, the idol makers, they're losing money. They're losing their trade. They're going out of business. And so this Demetrius, he gathers up all the other silversmiths and all the other idol makers, and he says, guys, I can imagine this is a round table. We're losing money. This Paul, he's coming to our city of Ephesus, and he's, he's making us lose money. He's turning people away from these gods that we make with hands, and we've got to do something about this. We've got to stop this. And so there at the table... Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So they've got Paul's friends. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him because they knew it was trouble. They would not allow him to go into the crowd. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the whole assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. So there's just this crowd, right? Hey, there's a crowd. I see a crowd. Let's go see what's going on in the middle of a crowd. Maybe like fighting dogs or something. What's going on here? We don't know what's happening. Let's go see what's happening. 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, he's kind of a leader here in Ephesus, motioning with his hand, he wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. There's a riot. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? You see a lot of deception and a lot of trickery going on here. 
uh, verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. He says, who do these people think they are? For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. We can go to court, basically. Let them bring their charges against one another. But if you seek another further, anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So what's just happened there is you've got a major riot in the city of Ephesus. And you've got Paul and a few of these Christians who have been taken by the hand, brought into the center of the city, and you've got all these idol makers, you've got these craftsmen, and they're saying, we don't believe in this way, we're losing money, and they're really trying to stir up the entire city to then murder, to kill, or to do away with Paul and all the Christians. Christianity, whenever it comes into a place, it takes over. It spreads like wildfire. And what we see here is we've seen that we've seen a whole city burn a bunch of books renouncing their old way of old way of life and it's causing a major uproar and so for the city of Ephesus one of the things that they left behind was they left behind witchcraft and they left behind idolatry we're going to take a pause right now just kind of where we are and what I want you to do an exercise for me this morning, okay? This is a little bit different. We've never done this before. I want you to do a little exercise for me, okay? We've just seen that in the city of Ephesus, one of the things that was left behind whenever Christianity entered was they left behind idolatry. They left behind um, these demonic activities. They left behind witchcraft. And the whole city was changed for the better, becoming followers of Jesus. What I want to do this morning is I want to give you an opportunity, just right where you're sitting, and the, the question should be up on the screen. Here's the question. What three things need to be changed the most in our community? It's pretty simple, right? Pretty simple question. What three things need to be changed the most in our community, in maybe a two to three mile radius around this school, or your community where you live, what three things do you notice? And maybe another question or another way to ask that would be this. If Jesus had his way with your neighborhood, if Jesus had his way with your surrounding area, what three specific strongholds or sins or struggles would change? Okay? Jesus enters into an area, Jesus is changing lives there, what three biggest things or sins or strongholds or struggles would change the most? Kind of right where you are, I want, I want you to go ahead and write down those answers, maybe pair up with somebody right where you are. We're going to take about two or three minutes to do this, so everybody go. I told you, you're going to need to talk today.
maybe your neighborhood, maybe you've been driving by this area, what three things do you think would need to change the most? If Jesus takes over in your neighborhood, what three things are going to change? Take one more minute. need your help with this, okay? I know you're introverted. I know some of you are double introverted, but let's try this, okay? Everybody just just shout one out. What's going to change in your neighborhood if Jesus gets what he wants? Less drugs, okay, that's good. More love. Inclusion. As opposed to exclusion. I like that. Inclusion. Okay? Less homelessness. Unity. Okay, unity. That's great. Less worldliness. Now this is going to be a stretch, but I'm looking for three more. Okay? Just three more. Let's push. Three more. Complacency, okay? People wouldn't be satisfied with where they are. Two more. I know we can do it. Let's push. Fewer distractions. It's good. We don't want to be distraction. Say again? Whole families. That's great. Whole families. That's good. Whenever Jesus steps into an area, 
If Jesus were to get what he wants in your neighborhood, if Jesus were to get what he wants in this community, there would be less drugs. If Jesus gets what he wants, there would be more love. If he got what he wanted, there would be more inclusion, less homelessness, unity, less worldliness, less complacency, fewer distractions, and whole families. Here at Creekside, I've been trying to think through this over the last several years, and I've kind of narrowed down to three of, of what I think that might be here in this area. If you were to kind of take a drive in two to three miles anyway, uh, any direction from this area, two or three things that I, I really think, and it doesn't mean that you're wrong. We live in totally different neighborhoods. This is just what I believe. If you were to drive in a two-mile radius from this school and Jesus gets what he wants, I believe one of the very things that's going to change is the family dynamic. The family dynamic, and meaning that families are falling apart here in this area. That marriages are, are unhealthy. That marriages are at a, um, falling apart at a pretty high level. Now, some of you say, well, okay, well, that's anywhere you go in the United States. Fa- marriages are falling apart. What's specifically this area? Specifically in this area, there's about a 40% ratio of single moms and single dads right here in this area. That's about 4,000 family units right here. 4,000 family units that are single mom right here in this area. Second would be drugs and alcohol. If Jesus gets what he wants, one of the biggest things that will change is the number of folks enslaved to drug and alcohol. You can drive in any direction from this school this morning, and you're going to pass several different high-risk areas for drugs and for alcohol. You might even say addiction there. And lastly, I would say that community, that community is one of, those biggest wor- one of those biggest things that would change, meaning that people here just don't have friends. People here just don't have friends. I, I don't know what kind of neighborhood you live in, but in my neighborhood, people just don't hang out. They're not friends with anybody. They, will, um, they might um, come home from work, they close the garage, they park the truck, and that's it. Like They don't do anything until the next day. They don't do anything until the next morning. Um, they come home and close the garage and they're not heard from. Just take a walk around your neighborhood this evening. Tell me who's out. Tell me what you see. Uh, people here just don't have friends. And so one of the things that I think is that what God wants to do, what God wants to bring to this area, if Jesus gets his way, much like he did here in Ephesus, God is going to change the family dynamic. God's going to change families. are going to be much healthier. Families are going to be stable. Families aren't going to be fighting and falling apart. If Jesus gets what he wants, he's going to open up some type of place here, some type of open doors where folks can find help for addictions to drug and alcohol. There's not a lot of that here. Folks are stuck, feel like they're stuck in this. And last but not least, if Jesus gets what he wants in this area, neighbors are going to become best friends. They're not going to stove up all day. Do you believe that God can do this? Do you believe that God can change this? Do you believe that God can bring this about? Because what we just saw here in Ephesus was God started a movement. God started a movement through ordinary people who laid down their old ways who left everything behind, who denounced their habits, who denounced their false gods, who denounced their sins, and God changed the course of an entire city. So maybe the better question is, if Jesus has his way in your life, 
what three things will change the most? Jesus is king over your life. What three things will change the most? Because maybe this morning, maybe we're not allowing the king to be king. We're not allowing him to take control over certain areas of our life. This morning, what if your unwillingness to change, what if your unwillingness to allow Jesus to be king is causing some of the biggest difficulties in your life right now? What if? What if God is trying to do things in us right now collectively as a group that he's trying to do in and through us to this community? You see, it's come full circle. What God's doing in us is what God wants to do through us. What God is doing in us, he must do through us this morning. And the bottom line, if you don't take anything else away, is that what God wants to do through us, he must first do in us. If you are here this morning experiencing pain, difficulty, suffering, a broken heart, if you're here this morning and you're experiencing places in your marriage that are just unhealthy, coming to a place where you just don't know what to do, I guarantee you it's because God wants to be king over this area of your life, over your anxiety, over your stress, over your depression. He wants to be king over that so that then eventually he can work through that for the greater good of those around you. You see, if Creekside is going to lead the way in strengthening families, we have to make marriage and parenting a high priority here. If Creekside is going to lead the way in breaking old habits and vices, that if we're going to lead in such a way that we're going to show the rest of the community what it's like to experience freedom from slavery, then we too must leave those things behind. If Creekside is going to lead the way in being hospitable, if we're going to show the rest of the neighborhood what it's like to have friends and what community is like, what healthy friendships is like, then we're going to have to lead the way and not come home and close our garages and turn on the TV. God is doing in us. He's going to do through us. Turn with me just real fast to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, really, really quickly. I didn't tell you in advance to pack a lunch, so I apologize. I tell my wife that every week. I'm like, baby, I hope you pack a lunch. She's like, I will find another church. That's a joke. Ephesians 1. He says these words. He says, Paul, he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Listen, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the church at Ephesus? Who are the saints who are in Ephesus? Who are these people that Paul's writing to? the men and women who are just out on the streets saying, here's our idols. Here's our old way of life. Here's our vices. We denounce it and we follow Christ. And the city of Ephesus became one of the greatest churches, not only in the Bible, but in history. 
You see, movements are started whenever ordinary people allow Jesus Christ as king to work in their lives. That's how cities are changed. It's whenever you allow God to change your life. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful this morning that you have changed the course of a city called Ephesus for the good, for the better. Lord, that place became a beacon of light, became a place of good news, became a place where people found hope. Lord, could it be that that's what you want to do through us? Could it be that you're working in our lives in such a way to where we can minister to those around us? Lord, I know for a fact that there are people here in this room this morning going through heavy, heavy moments in their life, pain, painful moments. And one of the things that I know about this community particularly is that this community is hurting. Who better to bring the good news of Jesus than those who have walked through trials and have stood through it steadfast and say, Jesus is king. And I don't know how I got through it, but the only way that I did was through the grace of God. Let me show you this grace. Who better to say, this is how you get through addictions and shortcomings and failures. I I don't know how I did it, but I know that it was the grace of God. and, And if I can do it, you can do it too. Lord, I know that what we're going through today you want to use it and we have a choice are we going to be obedient to that or disobedient we pray obedience